the veil a little bit. He shows us why it is that that change has happened. In verse 19, uh, no, in verse 14, he says, The Pharisees were what? They were lovers of money. And so, uh, in other words, what Jesus has done is what we would say, he, he stepped on their toes, right? He, he has hit them right where it hurts. So that now, rather than letting his word transform them, which is what his word should always do in our lives, they're pushing against it. They, they are now fighting against him. They are, are defensive. They are angry. They're saying, hold on, Jesus. You're, you're, you're taking that just a, a little bit too far with that whole money thing, right? You know, they're, they're trying to rationalize in their minds. Yeah, we, you know, this, this can be bad, but, but it, maybe it's, it's not that bad. Maybe, maybe, they're even trying to justify themselves. Now, this is sort of a side note, but it's worth noting how far this is from their attitude back in chapter 15. You remember, it began there with them grumbling because Jesus was eating with sinners and tax collectors. He was too lenient towards these bad people. But, but now, now as Jesus seems to, to hit them where it hurts. They no longer want him to, to be that way. They, they no longer want him to, to take a hard line. When it's their idols, when it's their sin that, that he is really uh, sort of harping on, they don't want to deal with that. They don't want to be confronted with themselves, and they certainly don't want to get down to the greater issues, the hard issues that lie underneath all of their ridicule all their anger of Jesus in this passage. Again, it's worth pausing there simply to note that, that friends, we live in a world where all of us are trying to address, so many of us are trying to address the, the symptoms of sin. We're trying to address individual sins, maybe. Notice, Jesus, he's not content to just do that. He's not content just to think about money here. What he wants to do is get down on a deeper level. He wants to get down to their hearts. Why? Because he realizes that if all we do is fix the, the, the symptoms of sin, we haven't fixed the, the greater issue. The greater issue is a heart issue. Jesus is trying here to drive that home to these Pharisees. Again, I want you to think about how we do this in the world. You know, if you're a parent with your kid, you want them to act good out in public, right? And so you try to fix those outward behaviors that they do out in the world so that at least when they're away from you, they'll act like civilized human beings. And I want to say to you that they all did at Vacation Bible School all week. It was so great. We didn't have anybody do anything crazy, which is always good. Um, think about it in, in government. What do we want our, our leaders to do? We want them to legislate out bad behavior, right? That's what we want them to do, make laws that, that will take away the opportunity for bad behavior. Think about it. If you go to a bookstore... You're going to find shelves and shelves of self-help books. Books that say, if you will do these ten things, you can overcome X, whatever it may be. Now look, making sure that our kids don't do crazy things is not a bad thing. 
okay? I'm not, I'm not saying that. Making sure that our leaders are making laws that, that are intended to legislate out bad behavior, that's not a bad thing. Even self-help books, as far as they may go, they may be okay. But friends, the point that I'm trying to make to you, and I'm not doing a very good job of it, but the point I'm trying to make to you is that if that's all we do is consider behaviors, then we have not fixed the problem. This is why government could never do only what Jesus can do. Our government cannot legislate out bad behavior no matter how much they try because what they cannot do is fix people's hearts. We as parents cannot legislate out all of our kids' bad behaviors because guess what we can't do as human parents? Fix our children's hearts. What we can do and what we're called to do is point them to the one who can. And we as Christians are called to do that with the community, the world, the nation around us. To point them to the only solution to their real problem. That's what Jesus is doing here. That's why this passage is stuck here in the middle. And it seems so out of place. It seems like, why, why is this here? It's because Jesus has turned from a symptom of sin, love of money, to the real issue, the heart of the issue, all the way down to their core. They need to be transformed. They need to be redeemed. And so he is trying, he's trying to, to hold this out to them, trying to show them their hearts of stone need to be turned into hearts of flesh. Now, all of this gets us to the, the first mistake that, that we see them make as he, as he points them to their, their greater heart issues. Notice what he says to them. He says, you are those who justify yourselves before men. God knows your heart. For what is exalted among men is an abomination to God. Abomination to God. What he's saying here to them is that through the law, through their good behavior, through their efforts before men, they are trying to make themselves look better. They are trying to justify themselves in the sight of others. And God says, no law can justify you. Why? Because your hearts are deceitful. Your hearts are really the issue. He says, none of your works before men can justify you. Why? Because they are an abomination in the sight of God. Friends, I want to pause there just for a second to, to let the full weight of Jesus, of what he just said there, really sink into you. Human thing, human, what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. The things that the world celebrates, the things that, that it holds up to us, the things that, that happen apart from God's glory, they are an affront to Him. They're deserving only of His displeasure, only of His wrath. Jesus is saying to these men, you have tried to justify yourselves, but you cannot do it. You cannot save yourself. 
They were righteous in their own eyes, maybe even righteous in the world's eyes. They were far from God. And so mistake number one, an attempt at self-justification. Secondly, in this passage, I want you to notice an attempt at self-rule. An attempt at self-rule. This is mistake number two, and you see it all the way at the end in verse 18. You know, having exposed the, the Pharisees' inability to justify themselves, Jesus now kind of further pulls back the veil of their hearts by showing them that, that what they thought they were doing well, law-keeping, they were in fact failing miserably at. Not because they, they weren't keeping the law that, as they saw it, but because they were no longer keeping God's law. That's the point he's trying to make to us in verse 18. Now we read that, and again, we think, what in the world is this doing here? The, the, the passage begins talking about money. If you read ahead in verses 19 to the end of the chapter, it ends talking about money, and stuck right in the middle of all of that is this really hard, really difficult verse about divorce and about marriage. What's this got to do with anything? Well, in the Pharisees' day, in Jesus' day, uh, marriage was, was held in a low regard, just as it is in our own day by, by many people. Uh, and though the Pharisees would have confessed that, that marriage was important, that, that it was important to be faithful to one wife, in actual practice, what they were doing was allowing men, men specifically, to divorce their wives for almost anything. Uh, one commentator says that in the Jewish kind of rabbinical uh, tradition that there are laws on the books that say a man can divorce his wife if she makes a bad meal. There are laws on the books that say a man can divorce his wife if he sees another woman that's prettier than her. That's dangerous. But anyway, they were basically allowing divorce for, for almost anything. Now, clearly, that, that's not what God had in mind when he, got, uh, when he, when he uh, told Adam and Eve, when he instituted marriage in the garden. Uh, you know, that's not what he had in mind when he said, uh, two will become one flesh. Uh, and that's not what he had in mind when Jesus later on says that what, man has joined, what God has joined together, let no man separate. Now, I'll be honest with you, I struggle with this this week because we don't have time and the context will not allow us to turn this into a sermon on marriage. And it's not going to allow us to turn this into a sermon on divorce because though this is a, a very poignant passage, the point in the context is not really that. It's, it's more than that. But, but, quickly and in passing, let me just say that though there are a very few, very few biblical grounds for divorce. And though certainly things happen in our relationships that are difficult and heartbreaking and that often lead to endings we didn't necessarily want. And listen, if you have been in that situation, God's grace is sufficient even for that, right? He is kind and he is gracious. And so I'm not standing up here today on my high horse talking down to you about these things. But what I am trying to say to all of us is that what God makes clear is that marriage is a very serious thing. He takes marriage very seriously. I'm going to end up doing four marriages this summer. 
And at every one of them, I'm going to make sure I say these words. I said them to Lindsay and Braxton, and we'll say them to everybody else too. The vows we made there, the world may not take them seriously, but he takes them very, very seriously. And the church, the church, y'all, all of us together, we must once again stand up for what biblical marriage is. Now, I realize that is a loaded statement in our current political climate. That can mean a lot of things, and I mean it in almost all the ways that are right. But primarily here, I mean it in terms of protecting and holding marriage dear within our own walls. Friends, part of the reason why the world is in the shape of its end, part of the reason why marriage is in the shape of its end, part of the reason why the church is in the shape that it's in, is because we, as a church, have not held to a biblical view of marriage. We've allowed it to become something very much like what the Pharisees were doing here. You know, for a hundred bucks, you can go get divorced. That is clearly not what God had in mind here in this passage. That's clearly not what he would have for us. And so we, we, before we go out into the world and start fixing marriage out there, we need to, to make sure that we, as God's people, are looking to a biblical view of marriage in here. That's hard. And I know it is, and what I said at the beginning is true. If you've been there, God's grace is sufficient through it all. He is loving and kind, and he forgives us even for our greatest failures. And so we're not talking down to anybody today, but we're just holding to God's truth. And having said all of that, let's, let's continue on here. Well, clearly, the, the Pharisees, they, they didn't cherish marriage in this way. And on some level, that should make us shake our heads a little. After all, in point one of this passage, these were the men who were trying to justify themselves by the law. But now we see that in order to keep the law, what did they have to do? They had to change it. They had to make it more palatable. They had to make it so that their own sinful hearts could be satisfied, their own coveting hearts. And I would submit to you that really that's the thread that holds this whole chapter together. That the sin that underlies all of this is the Tenth Commandment. It's, it's covetedness. It's the love of money. We want what we can't have. It's, it's wanting another wife. It's wanting more and more and more. And God comes to us and he says, no, that, that's, you can't do that. Don't, don't covet. They have to change the law so that they can satisfy other people. But notice in verse 17, how much of the law can, can we let pass away? How much of it can we really compromise? He says, but it's easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. Friends, the answer is none of it can become void. None of it can pass away. You know, whether it's, you'll have no gods before me, whether it's honor your father and mother, whether it's don't lie, whether it's don't covet, it all stands. And if anything, Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, he makes it stronger, right? He shows us the inward nature of sin. He shows us that really if we dig deep into it, it's tough. It's, it's hard. And what Christ is trying to show these uh, Pharisees here and what he's trying to show us 
is that if we're gonna, if, if, if it's going to stand as it is, then we have no hope of ever really keeping it. This is the same thing that, that Paul says in Romans. Remember he says the law there is a schoolmaster that is teaching us what, teaching us what God requires and then it's showing us that we can't meet that standard. Again, he uses the 10th commandment in Romans 7 as proof of that. And so clearly, clearly, all of this puts these Pharisees, it puts us in a desperate situation. If, if the law is the standard, if we cannot justify ourselves, if we cannot keep it, and that's all that Jesus has said here, to put it shortly, saying, well, you could have done that earlier and that would have made it a lot easier. If we are his enemies, as he says in Weep Song, then we're in trouble. So what do we do? Do, do we despair? Do we throw our hands up and just try our best, even though we know it will do no good? Do we just live it up while we can? Well, certainly, that's, that's the way so many in our world are, are handling this. That's what they're attempting to do. But clearly, we need another way. And that leads us to our third and final point. I want you to notice God's gracious truth. And you see it there in verse 16 and in verse 17. Now, the first thing that we need to note here as we read verse 16. It says, The law and the prophets were until John. Since then, the good news of the kingdom of God is preached. And everyone forces his way into it. We need to note there that, that what Jesus is not saying is that everything that happened before the kingdom was preached, the law, the prophets, and John the Baptist, he's not saying that all of that is bad. Uh, he's not saying that all of that is irrelevant. He's not saying that all of that was even separate from what we have today. Rather, what he's suggesting to us as, as folks that claim to believe in a covenant theology, which is really all we're saying there, is that we believe that God has had one plan from the very beginning of the world. It's a plan that is unfolded through the Old Testament that finds its realization in Christ and that will be consummated in the new heavens and the new earth. Right There's one plan all the way through. And so holding to that... What we want to say is that in the Old Testament, God was laying the foundations. He was pointing us ahead to the Savior that was to come. And after John the Baptist, that Savior comes. Jesus comes on the scene. The King who ushers in the kingdom. He comes fulfilling that planned grace that we talked about at Vacation Bible School today, at, uh, last week. We said there that God from the very foundations of the world had set this plan into motion, this gracious plan to redeem lost sinners like you and I, to do it through His Son, through Jesus Christ our Lord, who brings that outrageous grace to us, outrageous in the sense that, that it overcomes all of the obstacles that we have before us, outrageous in the sense that He would come and die for someone like me, someone like you, that he would come for sinners. What, a, what an amazing plan that is. What, how outrageous it, it truly is. He would overcome all of our self-justification, all of our self-rule, all of our failures, all of our sins. He dealt with it all so that now, by faith in him, we might experience, we might take part in His newness of life, in His glorious resurrection. We talked about resurrecting grace this week. That, that takes us, makes us new, makes us alive again in Christ. His kingdom, even now, has been ushered in so that we are forever, 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 ever, 
members of it. Again, we talked about forever grace this week. Friends, no matter what may come, He will not, once we are His, let us go. No matter what this world may throw at us, He will get us safely home. Again, what's the explanation for any of that? Why would He do it? It is that grace that we talked about. He loved us so much. He was willing to go even to that extreme to give us what we could never deserve as men, what we could never earn, and what we could never make ourselves. Children of God. His, on this Father's Day, the right to call Him Father. Children who now see the abiding significance of His law. That's what the second part of this, of what verse 17 is all about. You know, the law is no longer in that second use. As, as theologians, they talk about the second use of the law. It's a mirror that shows us our sin. But now, as his people, we talk about it in the third use of the law. We realize now, finally, that we can't justify ourselves with it, but it is the best way for us to live. If he is our father, if he created us, if he's given us these Ten Commandments, if he's given us his law, then surely he knows how we're to live. And so we live by that law, not to save ourselves, not to justify ourselves, because we want to please him. We want to live the way that, that He has called us to live. We now know, we now see what the law was really all about. How does all of that work itself out in our lives? Well, this leads us to the, the final thing that I want us to see, and it's that second part of verse 16, probably the most difficult part in all of this, but we're going to make it quick because we don't have much time left. And I may have planned that. I may have done that on purpose. Uh, but it says, everyone forces his way into it. That, that is the kingdom. So, so what exactly is, is this all about? Well, if you have an ESV Bible, you'll notice down in the footnotes that it says the translation could also be everyone is forcefully urged into it. The Greek would, would allow that translation. And that certainly would be a much easier application. It is a true application. You know, Jesus here is trying to urge people into the kingdom. And that's what we should be doing as well. And that's certainly what I want to do here this morning. If you don't know Jesus as your Savior, if you're not part of that kingdom, we want to urge you in. Repent and fall at His feet today. Believe in Him. Trust in Him. Be saved. But I think the translation that, that is there in our passage, I think it's probably right. And if that's the case, what does it mean? Well, it means that, that Christ is saying that by faith, by cross-bearing, which he has, he's repeated over and over and over again in this book, by submitting to God's law, by living in conformity to it, by repentance, by self-denial, we are pressing with a holy determination, a holy, 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 not holy as all the way in, but holy. Uh, we are pressing maybe even with a, a, a holy violence, one commentator says, towards him, towards his kingdom. We, we, are some making, we are doing what Paul says. Um, oh, what's, the, what's the term that, that he uses? There? We are beating our bodies into submission in order that we might attain God's glory. We might attain to that. Now, we know that all of that will not save us. Only he can do it. But knowing him, knowing the truth of who he is, we now pursue him with all we have. That's what James talks about in James chapter 2. 
doers of the word. Faith without works is dead. That's, that's what he's driving us at here. And so in other words, to, to try to bring this back to where we started, the only way we will ever be free of self-justification, the only way we will ever be free of self-rule, free from sin so that we can view God and his law rightly and pursue him in a legitimate way, is to look to Jesus. It's to, to trust in him. It's to be transformed by his amazing grace towards us. Now, friends, I'll just be frank with you. I don't know that I've done a good job with any of that. And so let me just try to put it as simply as I can. The call that, that Jesus is giving us here is this. His law stands. We cannot keep it. We are in desperate need because we cannot justify ourselves. And so today, will you trust in Christ to save you? That's the only option. That, that's the only way we can be saved. And so will you, will you trust in him today as we pray together? Father, we pause in these moments, and Lord, we need you to, to take what is a difficult passage and to make it clear. Uh, Lord, I can't teach this in a way that, that would penetrate to our hearts, uh, but Lord, you can, and you can take even the, the weak things of this world, and you can do great things with them. And so we pray that you might be faithful to do that even now, even in this time. Lord, make this book live to us. Help us to see the truths that you would have for us. And Lord, we pray that you would help us to fall at your feet. Uh, Lord, help us to love your law. Uh, help us to, to live by it, not as a means of justification, but as a means to, to honor and glorify and love you even more. And Lord, we thank you for Jesus, who has redeemed us, who has saved us, who has done all that we need to do to, to be with you forever. Uh, and Lord, we ask all of these things in his name. Amen.